Andy, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to talk football today. That's right, actual football played on a field. It's a state of the program program. That's right. We have a series at The Athletic called State of the Program. One team per day until we've done all 130 FBS teams. And every once in a while on the podcast, we are hitting those teams and talking about them. Three big ones in the past week. Today, you can read about Michigan. Sunday, you could read about UCF, and of course, that story is still there. Georgia came in late last week. Those are three programs that are very, very interesting. We start with Michigan. We're going to talk to Austin Meek, the Athletics Michigan beat writer, about the two halves of the Michigan fan base. And it really does feel like half and half at this point. One side says, listen, I know this isn't everything we wanted, but it's a lot better than what it was. And we're still winning a lot of games. So let's cut Jim Harbaugh a break. And the other half says, what the heck? Why can't we beat Ohio State? Why can't we win the Big Ten East or the Big Ten? Why can't we get in the playoff? Why can't we win national titles? Are we not the winningest program in college football history? It's a really interesting push-pull. And this season may help define who wins, who's the majority, whose opinion winds up weighing more, because right now it does feel pretty even. We're going to talk to Austin about that. Then we're going to talk to Chris Vanini. We're going to talk about UCF. You probably forgot about UCF, right? If you're not a UCF fan, if you're not a fan of a team in the American Conference, you are probably pleased that you didn't have to hear the, is UCF a playoff team debate? Well, guess what? You may be hearing it again this year because UCF was not that far away last year. You go back and look at that season, and Chris and I will, do, will break it all down for you. But they were very close to having yet another season where we were having that conversation. And guess what? They've got a really good quarterback who could make another season like that possible. So UCF is going to be in the conversation this year, whether you like it or not. So we're going to talk about it. After that, Seth Emerson, our Georgia beat writer, joins to talk about one of the most interesting teams in college football. Georgia has been right on the precipice. They were a second and 26 miracle pass away from winning a national title in the 2017 season. They've won the SECs three years in a row, but they got walloped by LSU in the SEC title game last year. Oh, that's okay. LSU did that to everyone. The Alabama game the year before, we all know what happened there. Tua gets hurt. Jalen Hurts comes in, saves their bacon. Jake Fromm's having a game of his life. Justin Fields' fake punt didn't work. Justin Fields on his way to Ohio State. Kirby Smart's been answering questions about this stuff over and over. Well, more like not answering. He's been getting questions about it. And the big question has been, what are you going to do about the offense? You have all this talent. Why do you keep trying to play an offense that nobody's really cared about playing for 10 years? Well, I think it's going to change this year. New offensive coordinator, dual threat quarterback who's probably going to be the starter, bunch of new starting offensive linemen, some young talent at receiver, and a lights-out defense. Is this George's year? We're going to talk about it with Seth Emerson. It's fun to talk about football, isn't it? All right, let's talk some Michigan with Austin Meek. 
Joined now by the Athletics Michigan beat writer, Austin Meek. And Austin's state of the program, your story sums it up perfectly. You start out with two comments from your Michigan fan survey. And one comment is from a Michigan fan who says, I get that, that the Wolverines aren't beating Ohio State, but I'm happy with everything else. I'm happy with the direction of the program. I'm happy with Jim Harbaugh. And then you have another one who says, why are there no college playoff appearances, college football playoff appearances? Why are there no Big Ten titles? Why Why are there no Big Ten championship game appearances? Shouldn't this stuff have been happening in year three? Are we to expect it to happen now in year six? And that really seems to be where Michigan's at. It's, it, there are two factions, one that says, this is way better than Brady Hoke, and the other that says, but we're Michigan, we're supposed to win Big Ten titles. So it, what group is bigger do you think, Austin? You know, it really honestly does feel to me that they're kind of in balance right now. Uh, that there's this vocal group on one hand that has just had it with Jim Harbaugh, uh, is getting disillusioned, is sick of losing to Ohio State, and just says, let's just be done with this. Let's move on. Let's start over. And then there's a group on the other other side that, that is really balancing the scale and saying, hey, you know, we're winning nine or ten games every year. Uh, we're winning the games we're supposed to win. Jim Harbaugh is graduating players. We like the way he runs the program. Let's just be happy with that. And then there's, you know, there's also that group in the middle, you know, that, that falls somewhere in between the, the fans who maybe aren't fully satisfied, but also aren't fully ready to move on. So I really do, you know, the way I would kind of frame this season for Michigan and for Jim Harbaugh, which is year six, uh, I wonder if this is going to be the year that tips it one way or the other. Because if Michigan has a year where they take a step back, if they win six or seven games, then I think you would see the scale tip pretty sharply toward the fans who are really fed up with Jim Harbaugh. Whereas, you know, if, if they surprise some people this year, if, if they win 10 or 11 games with this team, with a lot of things that they have to replace, then I think you could see it tip it the other way, where, you know, some of those fans who, who maybe were more vocal about their dissatisfaction with Jim Harbaugh, maybe start to realize, you know what, there's worse things in the world than, than being a, a nine or 10 win team every year. Quite, quite a trivia question. Among Power 5 head coaches, only Dabo Sweeney, Nick Saban, Paul Christ, and James Franklin have more wins over the past five seasons than Jim Harbaugh, who was tied with, with Brian Kelly and Kirk Ferentz in that category. And that, that's pretty rare company. So now I I think Kirby Smart doesn't have five seasons at the helm of Georgia. Otherwise, he'd be in there, too. There's a couple people that that you might throw in there, but he's in the mix with the best of the best. Yeah, and the other guy who just doesn't quite make the cutoff there is Urban Meyer. And obviously, Urban Meyer was a... Yeah, Lincoln Lincoln Riley, Riley. too. Uh, Urban Meyer, a big part of Jim Harbaugh's problems at Michigan. You know, Um, it, it really is just all about he hasn't been able to get over that last hurdle, you know, as I thought that, you know, that first commenter uh, that, that you read, I thought summed it up well is Jim Harbaugh just had the misfortune of coming to Michigan at a time when Ohio state was getting ready to go on a generational run, you know, but, but here's the problem. Ohio state's changed coaches. And at least with the one, one year sample size we have, they got better under Ryan yeah. Day. And you look at the recruiting class they have now, uh, that gap is getting bigger. I mean, that's the thing that's scary 
I think if you're a Michigan fan is when I got here last year, a lot of the conversation was, okay, we got finally Urban Meyer is gone. There's nothing standing in Jim Harbaugh's way. You know, this is the time now that Michigan is going to take that, that step uh, and win a Big Ten championship. And I think a lot of Michigan fans probably came away from that Ohio State game last year with a pit in their stomachs. Like, you know, we were supposed to be ready to surpass Ohio State now because they have a first-time head coach. And all of a sudden, the gap is just as big as it was. And, it, and it's only getting bigger when you look at how Ryan Day has taken Ohio State's recruiting to another level. So I think that's the thing that's scary for Michigan is you know, not only has Ohio State not lost a step with that coaching transition right now, it looks like they've only gotten better. Well, and I've been to the last two Michigan-Ohio State games in person, and, and the thing that amazed me the most was the how Ohio State basically makes it where Michigan has to play a perfect game to even be in the game. Because Michigan started off really well last season, and it looked like they were going to be in that game, and they made one mistake, and it was over. And that has got to be incredibly frustrating, because perfect games are hard to play. Perfect games against your rival even harder. So that that's the part that I think uh, that second faction. I, I get where the frustration is, is lies. the The problem is that doesn't change unless you decide you want to recruit the types of players that Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson that those guys recruit because those are the only people who can compete with one another. Yeah, and you know Jim Harbaugh's recruiting has been certainly a. Uh, uh, a topic that has divided the fan base uh, because it's not like Michigan has recruited poorly. I mean, you look at his, you know, his five classes at Michigan, they've all been kind of around top 10, top 15 range. He's gotten he's very, very similar to, I wrote the Florida state of the program mm-hmm. last week, very similar situation yeah. where you've got Florida, same, same place, 10 to 15, nine to 15 range, but then Georgia's in the top five. And, and you got to beat them if you want to win your division. It's, a, it, it, it's not, all, not identical quite yet, but it's, it's close. Yeah, and you know the thing I think that is really separating Michigan is you know, Jim Harbaugh's done a nice job of building the roster top to bottom. You know, I think they had 10 draft picks this year. Um, so Jim Harbaugh has churned out good players, NFL-caliber players, the thing that's separating Michigan and Ohio State and, and Michigan and Alabama and the other teams at the top, it's the real top-end talent. You know, you look at the number of, of top 100 players on Michigan's roster, Ohio State's got more top 100 players in their 2021 class than Michigan's got on its whole roster. That, you know, that's your separation right there. Jim Harbaugh just hasn't been able to get the, the real difference makers, the, you know, the top 50 type players. And in – in a game where, you know, obviously Ohio State is never going to look past Michigan. Uh, Michigan is going to get Ohio State's best game every year. And so that's when that talent gap shows up. You know, right. Ohio State per- has the difference makers. Michigan doesn't. Purdue might sneak up on them. Iowa might sneak up on them, but Michigan never will. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So let's talk about the position where you can close gaps, where if you if you got somebody good, it'll help you close a talent gap a little bit, and that's quarterback. Uh you write in your story about the situation where you know Dylan McCaffrey comes in the Wisconsin game to play, replace Shea Patterson, and Jim Harbaugh had talked of a two-quarterback system, but McCaffrey got hurt, Patterson's back in, and then it's Patterson really the rest of the way. 
Now you've got McCaffrey and Joe Milton. Is there a sense of this is going to be two QBs until they figure out what they want or they've got a guy in mind? How are they going to figure this out with with no spring practice and, and limited time? You know, even before the coronavirus shut down, I sort of had a feeling that this was going to be a year where Michigan played more than one quarterback. Maybe it's a matter of giving them both a chance to win the job and playing them both early in the season and seeing who takes control of it. You know, maybe it's a case where you start with one and you need to change your pace and you play the other one. I don't really know how it's going to shake out, but I think especially with losing spring practice now, I think that there's a good chance that we're going to see both of those guys, partly because, you know, Dylan McCaffrey, uh, he's the more experienced of the two players. He's gotten more playing time, but he also has injury history. You know, the injury last year was, was the second time uh, that he'd had a pretty significant injury. So I, I just think we're going to see both of those guys at some point. Uh, and it's a matter of which one of them can really seize the job. Dylan McCaffrey, as I said, you know, more experienced, ha- has had more, you know, an older player, uh, but also, you know, a completely new system they brought in last year. So in that sense, they're both kind of on even footing. And, uh, you know, Joe Milton's got some some tools that you can't teach. I mean, he's got a massive arm, um, a lot of potential with Joe Milton. I think the question is, is, is he ready to step in and do everything that Michigan's going to need from its starting quarterback? The, the thing I thought was interesting about their offense last year was it really felt like the second half of the Penn State game was where it all clicked together. And you started seeing, okay, they're starting to understand what they're, what they're trying to do. Josh Gaddis is, is maybe understanding what he's supposed to be doing as a play caller. But from that point on, it seemed like a much more competent offense. Do you think that carries over even though they lose the starting quarterback, they lose four starting offensive linemen, they, they do bring back some good receivers. They do bring back people who have played. Do you think the gains they made toward the end of last season will carry over? Yeah, it's hard to say. If, if they'd had a normal offseason, I think we'd be saying, okay, it's year two for Josh Gaddis. This is the time when the offense really takes off. You know, if, you, if you look at the full season stats last year, uh, like you said, they don't really tell the story because Michigan's offense was terrible in the first month of the season. I mean, in that, that game against Wisconsin that they lost in September, it's like, have these guys played together before? Uh, and they did, you know, it, it did come together for them about midseason. Uh, Shea Patterson played a lot better in the second half of the season than he did in the first half. So if there had been a normal spring practice to build on that, I think that I would feel pretty confident that they're going to take a, a pretty big step forward in year two. But it's hard to say that now, you know, with – uh, with all the things that they have to replace that you mentioned, you know, the quarterback, four starters on the offensive line, uh, you, the receiver group with Nico Collins coming back, that was big for them that he decided to come back and play another year. Ronnie Bell had a really good year. The running back group is really strong. Uh, you know, they bring back their two, top two running backs from last year and they get Chris Evans back in the mix. So they do have some pieces to build around. Uh, but I would expect that, that, maybe they'll have to take a, a little bit of a step back before they can take a bigger step forward just because of all the, the guys they have to replace. And Defensively, it seems it's, it's a lot more stable. Uh, Josh Uche's gone. Cam McGrone is back. They seem to find a lot of ways to, to use him last year. It, it does feel like they have some stability there and, and a lot for Don Brown to work with. Yeah. 
Yeah, you, you pretty much know what you're going to get from a Don Brown defense. They're going to be really aggressive. They're going to get after the quarterback. Uh, it, you know, they're going to they're going to be a top ten, top fifteen type defense pretty much year in and year out. That that's the track record at least with Don Brown. They do have to figure out how to replace Josh Uche, like you mentioned. Uh, I'm not sure that they've got a guy that explosive off the edge, so they're going to have to maybe manufacture some pass rush in some different ways. This is where that one faction of Michigan fans goes, wait, you didn't use him when you had him. (laughs) You know, it's a totally, totally legit point. You know, he was not an every down player for Michigan last year, and that that puzzled a lot of people. Uh, But, you know, Don Brown's answer to that would be, he had one thing that he did really well, and we wanted him to be able to, do that a hundred percent. So we put him on the field when we needed to get after the quarterback. And he did that. That would probably be what Don Brown would say. Uh, but it's a totally legit point that I'm not sure that they got everything they could have gotten out of Josh Uche. And now it's going to be, you know, guys like Quiddy pay Aiden Hutchinson, the two defensive ends they have coming back are really good. So they've got some guys, but I think Don Brown's going to have to get a little bit creative with it. So you look at the schedule that they've got to open the season at Washington, the first game of the Jimmy Lake era. Uh, but Washington's a, a program in flux as well. New quarterback, a lot of new stuff going on there. But I look at the I look at the Big Ten schedule and what they get out of the West. Now they get Penn State at home from the East. So that they play Penn State really well in Ann Arbor. Uh, but they they've got to play Wisconsin again. They've they've got to play at Minnesota. They've got to play Purdue, which wasn't good last year, but seems to be on an upward trajectory under Jeff Brom. So what do you realistically see for Michigan from this schedule? You know, I think so much of the season is going to be determined by what happens in the first half of it, because there, there's a scenario where Michigan could be absolutely buried by the middle of October. Uh, you mentioned they've got Wisconsin and Penn state to open up big 10 play. Uh, then they play Michigan state and Minnesota on the road. Minnesota's going to be a tough trip. Uh, so there's a scenario where, you know, Michigan could be buried in the big 10 standings by the middle of October. And, you know, you're just kind of playing out the string, but there's also a scenario if, if Michigan plays well in the first half of the season, then you look at how they end it. Purdue, Maryland, Rutgers, Indiana, and then Ohio state. Uh, so to me, it's just a matter of, you know, with a, with a condensed off season, with a short training camp, with a, you know, a, a tough game that we you know, at this point believe is going to happen at Washington. Um, that's a big, that's a big challenge. They, they certainly cannot afford to have the kind of start that they had last year. Uh, because if that happens they're you know, they're going to be done in the middle of the season. I think they got to split Wisconsin and Penn state. I think if they can do that, then there's a chance to have what they will consider a very good season. Now you probably do need to go to Minnesota and win that game. But if you can do that, it, I, I think that that second faction may quiet down a little bit. Cause I, I think you're right that this is not one where the championship or bus people are going to go into the season saying I'm out. If they don't win the big 10, Nobody is expecting them to win the Big Ten this year. So if they have a good season, a solid double-digit win season, I would think some of those people may come around, right? Right. I think the only silver lining uh, of Michigan not being able to win some of these big games in the first five years with Jim Harbaugh is I do feel like the expectations have been taken down 
just a notch. You know, it, it's not like anybody's just saying, oh, you know, we'll be happy if we go to a bowl game. It's, it's not that. Uh, but the whole we're going to win multiple national championships narrative that existed when Jim Harbaugh got here, that's pretty much been stamped out by now. Pe- people understand where, where the program is. Uh, it, to me, this is, you know, one of the first chances uh, for Jim Harbaugh to have a season where people are pleasantly surprised by it. You know, I, I think if they win 10 or 11 games, maybe even nine, people will be like, you know, that, that's a pretty good season. And that wasn't, that wasn't the feeling in the past. In the past, like, if you win 10 games but you lose to Ohio State and you don't win the Big Ten, we're not happy with that. But I don't think that's the situation anymore. So Jim Harbaugh has gone from savior to, eh, not so bad. <laughs> it, it, it's uh yeah it's a nice thing you know uh expectations are crazy and the expectations here for Jim Harbaugh were were massive I mean probably bigger than they they should have been uh and it hasn't been fun I for Michigan fans to readjust those you know it it's uh it's happened in a difficult way but I do think that they've come a little bit more in line with reality now Austin thank you very much all right thanks Andy Gather around, kiddies. It is story time with Uncle Andy. And today I'm going to tell you about the morning of my senior prom. I wanted to make sure I smelled great for the blessed event. And so I went to Flea World. For those of you who know Central Florida well, Flea World was and possibly still is the world's largest outdoor flea market. And the things that they sold at Flea World, some were knockoffs. Some might have fallen off the back of a truck. I I don't know. I, I don't judge here. All I know is that I wanted to smell great for my prom. And I wanted that popular cologne that was you know, slightly lower temperature H2O. That was the, the new jam in 1996. That was the hotness. So I needed to get as much of that as possible for as little money as possible. And I bought an industrial-sized jug of it at the flea market. I think it was like 25 bucks. I know that I used that bottle of cologne until I was 35 years old. Do not follow my example when it comes to cologne. You can do so much better. You have many more options. You do not need to hit the dirt mall to buy your cologne. In fact, you need to hit Hawthorne.co. Take their quiz. Easy questions. They ask you what kind of smells you like, how often you shower, and I hope it's at least daily, please. They ask you what a night out is for you. They ask you what your drink of choice is, and they provide the perfect cologne for you. In fact, the perfect entire bathroom setup for you. You can get your lotions, your soaps. But for cologne for me, they want me to get the work and the play. The work is your fresh and aquatic. The play is your warm and aromatic in case your significant other wants to nuzzle in the neck. And that's, it feels like, you know, you're by the fire. So that's the stuff you need, not the stuff from the flea market. Hawthorne.co. Check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Use my promo code STAPLES and get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co and use my promo code STAPLES to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. We move... To the 407, Orlando, Florida, the city beautiful, home of the 2017, at least in their minds, national champion UCF Knights. 
And we're joined now by Chris Vanini, who did the UCF State of the Program. And last year, UCF did not go undefeated in the regular season after going undefeated in the regular season two years in a row. But as you point out in your story, Chris, it was actually pretty close to being a third. I, I For some reason, my memory was failing me. I did not remember that their Cincinnati game was as close as it was and the Tulsa loss was as close as it was. But these guys were right on the edge despite having a, a true freshman quarterback. Yeah, I mean, they lose three games by a total of seven points. They lose to Pitt uh, on that touchdown on fourth down in, in the final minute. Uh, they, they go to Cincinnati. They score one touchdown in six red zone trips and, and end up losing uh, a close one there. And then they get outscored 10 nothing in the final quarter at Tulsa. So they, 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 they lose three games to regular season, but you know, flip of a coin the other way, maybe uh, UCF is there making a case for the American Championship, making a case for the playoff yet again. But once, they, once that pit loss happened, and then especially after the Cincinnati loss, I think a lot of people nationally kind of push them aside because you didn't have to hear about them or hear from the fans on Twitter for a little bit. But I expect in 2020 uh, that may be the case again where, where they're in the mix. That's a very vocal fan base. And it, it, I realize people are you know, tired of it. The, the fans of the Power Five schools, they don't want to hear it. But I don't blame UCF fans for feeling how they feel because their team keeps winning and it doesn't get the, the same kind of respect that somebody in the Power Five League would when, when they've had the same kind of success. So I get where they're coming from. This year should be interesting. The, 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 they don't have a marquee Power 5 opponent, but they do open the season on a Friday night against North Carolina. They get them at home, which North Carolina is going to come into the season with a fair amount of hype. They might be favored to win the ACC Coastal. Uh, Then they're going to play at Georgia Tech on September 18th. So how much of a message does UCF have to send in those games to get the rest of the college football nation? Yeah, you know, they've had... Power five wins in recent years, you know, your Stanford's last year, your, your Maryland's a couple years ago, but a lot of these have been rained out from hurricanes. They were supposed to go to, to North Carolina in 2018. They got canceled from the hurricane. They were supposed to play Georgia Tech in 2017. That didn't happen because of a hurricane. We're all hoping the season is going to start on time this year and actually happen. So if, if they get North Carolina week one, a Friday night, so they'll have largely a big TV audience to themselves. Sam Howell, great freshman quarterback last year, will have a lot of hype. Could be a preseason top 25 team, maybe. Um, It's an opportunity to make a statement at the beginning of the season. If they lose that game, then I think you'll have a lot of people, you know, ignore UCF again. But, yeah, they come right out of the gate with a game against UNC, which I can think they uh, can really make a statement. So Dylan Gabriel jumps on the scene because we were talking this time last year about would it be Brandon Wimbush or Daryl Mack and Mack was injured going into training camp so then Wimbush kind of became the starter by default we weren't talking about Dylan Gabriel the the people at UCF were talking a lot about Dylan Gabriel because they, they thought he was special Mackenzie Milton had been the guy who convinced Josh Heupel to recruit Dylan Gabriel and then Gabriel you know at the end of his recruitment got real hot where USC and Georgia jumped in pretty late trying to get him but he ends up staying with UCF and he had a pretty amazing freshman season I I went back and looked and I was thinking about you know how good was McKenzie Milton as a true freshman and he was okay they they had a you know six and seven year he actually got booed coming off the field of the bowl game 
that that year and then came back and was just lights out his next year. But how much better can can Dylan Gabriel be yeah, in I mean, year two? He, a, a true freshman comes in across literally across more than across the country. He finishes number seven nationally in yards per attempt last year, number four in yards per completion, number 13 in quarterback rating. And he had seven interceptions. That, that was the only – the downside was the seven interceptions, and all seven came in those three losses. He was lights out all those other games. So if he just cuts down on that a little bit, things can, can really change. Now, he, he, he doesn't have uh, Gabe Davis's big – star receiver now who's who's left for the NFL, but he does have some pretty good guys still there. Marlon Williams, Trey Nixon, uh, some other guys. But, uh, yeah, Dylan Gabriel was surprised a lot of people as a true freshman, and, and the ceiling uh, is only going to go up and up, uh, I think. And there's still, you know, Mackenzie Milton, there's a chance he could be available this year. He, he's supposed to, I think, this month uh, hear from his surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Mackenzie thinks he has a 50-50 shot at, at playing this year, so... I, I imagine he probably wouldn't overtake Dylan Gabriel as a starter, but he could be on the field again as well. That's amazing to me because that was one of those injuries where it happened and you thought, okay, I hope he can yeah. walk again. I'm not even worried about whether right. he plays football again. The fact that he, he might be able to come back would be pretty incredible, but it sounds like you think that this this would not necessarily be come back and be the starter. It would be come back and, and maybe help mentor Dylan Gabriel, who, by the way, went to the same high school as Mackenzie Milton, so they've been right. through they're, this. They're, they're really good friends. You know, if we're just debating whether or not Mackenzie can even play, it's hard to imagine he would take the starting spot over Dylan Gabriel. But he spent last year as kind of a student coach. He he wants to get into coaching one day. Scott Frost already has you know offered him a GA spot whenever he wants it. Um, so uh, if he's able to play that that first time he goes out on the field, whenever that happens, if it happens would really be an incredible moment because almost nobody comes back from this injury to play again. You know, some, some people have their leg, leg amputated and if he's able to take the field again, it would really be an incredible moment. So we're all hoping that happens, obviously. Let's talk about the talent on the roster because the, the guys who are coming of age now are guys who signed with UCF after UCF had that amazing season under Scott Frost. And, you know, because before, They'd had some good seasons, but it was George O'Leary. You know, they, they were pretty good at collecting talent, but then they mutinied on him. Now you've got guys who have pretty much known UCF as a team that is successful. And, and has that changed the profile of the player they can recruit? Or are they still getting basically the same guys they were? They're, they're getting a little bit better guys. But even under O'Leary, like you said, they were recruiting talented players. They're typically one of the top classes recruiting classes in the group of five and and that has been the case it's it's what's remarkable is that especially under frost and it's continued at a hypo they play a lot of guys they play a lot of guys at skill positions so there are guys who have been there seemingly forever otis anderson running back uh yeah that, that's what i said when i was was reading your story i'm like wait otis anderson's still there he can't still yeah otis anderson now? and greg mccray who rushed for over a thousand yards in 2018 they're both back now as seniors this year and and there's a lot of guys you're right i was going through the state of the program going through the roster can't believe some of these guys are here but they've just they've all played as as freshman hybrid running back receiver type roles uh they, they've continued to do that and and 
the guys they're bringing in are going to continue to do that. And it's just they play a lot of guys, get a lot of guys the ball in space, and it's a recipe that obviously works. Yeah, and that's the thing that it's interesting because I wasn't sure when Frost left and Heupel came in that that was going to continue. We'd seen Heupel do well at Missouri as the offensive coordinator, but you know, you, you thought back to when he was the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma where they, their offense kind of stagnated a little bit toward the end. And, you know, would he be able to use all these different weapons? But he's done it as well or, or better than Frost did in terms of spreading it around and, and just getting all the, the fastest players on the field and getting the ball in their hands. How, how surprised were you that they've had this kind of continuity since Heupel showed up? This was not a case. This really isn't a case anymore of him just succeeding with the players Frost recruited. A lot of the players he inherited were recruited by O'Leary. So, he, he's really taken yeah, a run with really it. Yeah, he really has, I don't think, gotten enough credit for the job he's done. I, I think he's something like 22-4 and four is his record. He, I don't think he's lost a game by more than eight points. Um, and, yeah, you know, when he was at Missouri before he got this job, he they, they put up big numbers against bad teams and, and poor numbers against good teams. And I was in Orlando for that championship game when Scott Frost left and Hypo got the job a few days later and surprised a lot of people, but Danny White wanted to, an offensive guy to keep it going and yeah to, to to take over a program where undefeated becomes your standard and to almost live up to that to, to to go to the fiesta bowl that year to win that american championship game without mckenzie milton and then still play lsu relatively close without him and then to do what you did last year with dylan gabriel as a true freshman josh heupel has done a really really good job i don't know you know when a group of five head coach is successful People start wondering, you know, oh, does he leave for a Power 5 job or what could happen? I don't know where Josh Heupel may or may not fit, but UCF is probably the best group of five job available. They're willing to pay. It's, you've got all that talent right there. You can keep winning. You can clearly make the the, the, the New Year's six games when you're at UCF. So they, they've got a staff that's almost completely intact for three years in a row. Now. Randy Shannon is still the defensive coordinator there. Uh, they've just they've got a really consistent good thing going that has continued from what Scott Frost started and uh hypo has just really continued it at that high level yeah i don't think you would leave that unless you could go to a place where you're in a power five job where you can win your conference you you wouldn't leave that for a purdue type job it's not it's not worth it they may be able to give you a little bit more money but you're not going to do your six bowls there you're going to do your six bowls if you're the ucf coach if and you do your job correctly uh but let's talk about the league a little bit because i do feel like there's some continuity in the American that, that there hasn't been in a lot of years. It, so J, uh, Mike Norvell did leave Memphis and go to Florida State, but they they hire Ryan Silverfield, so they, they promote from within. But you've got year two of Dana Holgerson at Houston with a ton of transfers that are going to be eligible to play who, who could be pretty good. You've got Luke Fickle, year four at Cincinnati. They beat UCF last year. And I would think Cincinnati's probably the favorite to win the league this year. How do you feel about that, Chris? Who would you think comes out of the gate the favorite? I'm going with Memphis just because they got Brady White back and Damani Coxie back and Kenny Gainwell. They bring a ton back on on both sides. And they have a new coach, but it's not a huge change. Mike McIntyre, I think, was a really good hire as defensive coordinator. The problem is they have the toughest possible schedule you can have in the American. The American, with UConn gone, they do not have divisions anymore. It's the top two teams will play each other in the championship game. Memphis has a really tough schedule. 
They do get UCF at home, though, and they have to play at Cincinnati. So I, I think it comes down to those three, Cincinnati, UCF, Memphis. I think some combination of two of those three ends up being the championship game. Um, I think I've got Memphis probably number one. I think I had Cincinnati number two coming out of at the end of last season, but after kind of going through things, I kind of lean toward UCF second place because uh, losing Warren at Cincinnati, they they got a couple of changes they got to make there, but all three should be top 25 teams probably all season long will contend for that New Year's six spot. And I think are really just really, really good teams. Yeah. I think this is going to be a really interesting league this year. And there's going to be somebody who we don't know, whether that's Houston Tulane got somewhat better last year and then and then sort of fell off. Navy's always pretty good. This is going to be a fun league to watch this year. But UCF is an interesting one because I think there's a good chance we could be talking about them the same way we did in 17 and 18. And I know that's going to drive a lot of people crazy. And I'm here for that. I want you all to be driven crazy because that's fun. So get mad at the UCF people. UCF Twitter, get on everybody. I want all of you fighting with each other, and we'll see if UCF can keep winning. Chris Vanini, thank you so much for joining us. Yep, no problem. Thanks for having me. And now it's time to head to Athens to talk about the Georgia Bulldogs. Lots of off-season questions. Not many answers because there wasn't spring practice, and I'm not sure Kirby Smart would have given those answers anyway, because as our Seth Emerson pointed out in his State of the Program story that you read on The Athletic last week, at least I hope you did, but if you haven't, you can just go read it after this. Seth, Kirby didn't answer a lot of those questions while they were being asked and seemed to take joy in in actually not answering them. I don't know if I'd say joy uh, or I think he takes joy in kind of evading the media and toying with media on some things, but I think it was more, he knew the questions were coming and his manner of deflection, which he learned from the master, which was his mentor, uh, was to kind of express annoyance at the questions. And like I said, and he didn't say, he didn't want to make any big announcement about we're changing the offense. We're changing our offensive philosophy. So we don't actually know if he is frankly, but he just wanted to do everything by his actions. And his actions said that when Jake Fromm left, he recruited a dual-threat quarterback, Jamie Newman, which he had been pretty clear, I thought Kirby had, that he wanted dual-threat quarterbacks before. It just happened. You, you mean by signing Justin Fields? Yeah, he signed Justin Fields. He just couldn't give him the starting job after Jake Fromm, as a sophomore, was third in the nation in yards per attempt behind Tua Tagovailoa and Trevor Lawrence. So... Justin Fields leaves, but he he has always been enamored with the idea of a dual threat guy, and, and he has him. And he went out and got Todd Munkin uh, when he didn't actually technically have an opening for an offensive coordinator, and then he did. Uh, so yeah, he, he spoke through his actions this off season. We won't know until they start playing actual games what is the offense going to exactly look like. Maybe what we missed in spring practice in terms of what is really going to change is some knowledge, some previews by either Kirby, but more likely some of the players saying, all right, they're doing this, we're doing this, that kind of thing, and seeing it in action in a spring game. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be different on offense this year. We just don't know yet how different. 
Yeah, and I wonder how much the annoyance with the questions toward the end of last year were, hey, look, I'm going to deal with this, but right now this is what we have, so quit asking. I, I, that seems more logical than, than anything else. But So if you had to guess, Seth, based on, on what we know from Todd Munkin, who you know he was the coordinator who replaced Dana Holgerson at Oklahoma State and basically was told, continue doing what he was doing, and then in 2011, Munkin's first year, they have this amazing year with Brandon Weedman and Justin Blackman. He does well there. He goes to the NFL. He, he runs a pretty wide open offense in the NFL as well. What do you think he runs as he returns to college? I think it's going to not be quite, and this is just my guess, educated guess based on talking to people, but everyone's just guessing, you know, we, we don't have practices or games to go on. We are not privy to the Zoom meetings that they've been having where they've been installing the offense. We weren't privy to the walkthroughs they had before spring practice where they were starting to install the offense. But my guess is it won't be quite this opened up Oklahoma State circa 2011-2012 offense that Munkin ran, but it won't be what we saw last year at Georgia. It won't be that state and that kind of man ball conservative type. Um, I, I think one of the key things, Andy, is that people may have this vision of Georgia as this kind of, uh, you know, running the same offense, boring offense, boring, you know, two back set every time, two receiver set. No, they haven't been doing that. Nobody's been doing that. Maybe not literally nobody, but you know what I mean. Georgia's no, I mean they—they they weren't. They weren't doing that when Mike Bobo was the offensive coordinator. No, he, no. He Georgia evolved three as he receiver. Went. Yeah, Georgia's been a three receiver. Won't acknowledge the existence of the fullback position offense for almost a decade now. The I think one of the key things, and they were RPOs. They've been shotgun for a while. I think one of the key things was play calling and the predictability seemingly of it. Like you line up as you do. And the defense last year was able to say, all right, you know, this is what they're going to do. And they were able to guess it pretty well, but it was also the type of run plays were not that creative. So those are the, I think the two key things that Munkin is going to, if he's going to improve the offense, if he's going to look at, and you can't look at the 2019 personnel and say, we're going to change this because the 2020 personnel on offense is going to be almost totally different. But they're still going to have a couple good running backs in Zamir White and James Cook. They're still going to have some good but raw receivers, and they're going to have George Pickens. But they're also going to have a dual-threat quarterback who you can roll up some plays and is Ricky Bussell, former Louisiana Lafayette head coach, Michael Vick's offensive coordinator in college, now randomly just lives here in Athens because his wife's on the faculty, as he told me for a story that ran uh, after the state of the program. When you're calling plays for a dual-threat quarterback, you don't have to install those. You know, you don't really have to design plays. They haven't lost time for that. That Jimmy Newman actually gives them some benefit here for having lost spring practice and all this time in the summer because he that that's where freelancing as a quarterback comes in. And so that's that's something that's going to help them too. But I do think the two key things that Todd Munkin can, can do to improve this offense are the type of the run plays, like making them more creative, and the play calling being less predictable. So let's put this to, to bed if we can. I don't even know if we can. JT Daniels has transferred to Georgia. Do we expect him to be eligible this year? 
is he going to compete for the starting job with Jamie Newman? I, I don't know. I, I don't know about eligibility. I mean, do, do you, what do we predict with the NCAA these days? I mean, who, you know, have they, they've apparently started being a little more resistant uh, to them, but we don't know that for sure. Uh, so yeah, we can't predict it. I would, I he did leave his hometown to move all but, the way across the country. Yeah. <laughs> so I, don't yeah. Know I, he, I think that the, the thing that helps his case is that not case because they're technically not supposed to do this. Like the, this isn't supposed to matter under current NCAA rules that are going to change, but haven't changed yet. But he took a medical red shirt last year. So if you ask him to sit out this year, which would be the rule, he would be taking two red shirt years in a row so that i think enhances the chance that the ncaa agrees to whatever plea whatever extenuating circumstances jt daniels is going to put in there having said that he's still starting from behind because jamie newman even though he didn't have spring practice or may workouts whatever those would have included um he was here earlier and they did have those walkthroughs and seven on sevens. And, and he also has a little bit more college experience. He's a little bit older. Um, I tend to think that JT Daniels, if he's eligible for this year and someone looking over Jamie Newman's shoulder, but is more likely the starter in 2021 going forward. Well, we'll see. Cause it, they, this is the thing. And this is what you do when you get into the level where Georgia is, you're constantly bringing in five-star quarterbacks and, Somebody's going to transfer because you know you've got Beck who signed out of Florida last this past year, and then Vandegrift who's committed to sign. So it is interesting that they are now at that point where, and I guess they were before since the presumptive Heisman favorite was a freshman quarterback at Georgia and then left because he couldn't win the job. So it's this is where you want to be, even though. Everybody's going to use it to pile on Kirby Smart for not picking Justin Fields. But this is where you want to be, where you're choosing between some pretty good choices at quarterback. Right. And, man, we could do an entire show on the Justin Fields, Jake Fromm thing. But like I said earlier, what completely gets lost is that Jake Fromm, when Justin Fields left, was coming off year when he was third in the nation in yards per attempt. Georgia's offense did great. So that kind of gets lost. People are judging Jake Fromm on how his junior year went, how Justin Fields' first year at Ohio State went, and lately on something Jake Fromm said in a text message <laughs> that did not reflect well on his character. No, but, no, no, no. No, but what I thought out of that, I wondered, I didn't conclude, but I wondered if Kirby Smart was taking a lesson out of that, that sometimes you can overstockpile at quarterback at such a visible position, like absolutely recruit over the next guy every year, everywhere except that. Um, whereas Mark Richt and Mike Bobo were a little bit more strategic, kind of balancing, you know, trying to space out the quarterback position so it had a little bit more flow. And I thought that might be happening because Carson Beck, you mentioned, you know, he's a four-star, but he was like ranked 90 or something, not a five-star. But then they go get JT Daniels. And it's like, okay, no, 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 Kirby, Kirby is continuing to say, I'm going to go get the best players I can possibly get at every single position. You have to keep doing it. That's a, I mean, Clemson's a prime example. They keep doing it. Ohio State's a great example. Remember, the guy who won the Heisman last year and led the undefeated national champions with maybe the best season a quarterback ever had didn't win the job at Ohio State. So, you know, nobody's killing Urban Meyer for picking Dwayne Haskins because Dwayne Haskins was also a first-round draft pick, but that's 
that's what happened. So it, that's what's what you have to do to be at that level. Now let's let's talk about something that seems a little more decided and and you know buttoned up. Georgia's defense. They bring back a lot. They were really good last year. It feels like almost everything stays the same, other than maybe they're a little bit deeper because they've got some young guys who probably are pushing to play, but still maybe not winning jobs. Well, not only that, Andy, but they played so many guys last year. I think the number, uh, I guess everything pre-pandemic, like it's a time capsule, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pull back on things that you normally would remember <laughs> that you wrote. But you know what I mean? But, so Back I when we talked about football as football, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when I'm yeah exactly. I'm trying to remember exactly what the number was, but I think it, it was either 22 or 23 guys that I counted in Georgia's defensive rotation last year, as in guys that played when the game was still in doubt, guys that played in the first half, basically. Um, and so, out of that 22 or 23, the vast majority of the back, um, and the guy that you thought like, like the one guy who was a three-year starter and this guy we'll have to see how he'll be replaced is J.R. Reed he was actually undrafted which that that doesn't mean he wasn't a good college player but it's just kind of shows you how much talent Georgia still has coming back um yeah I mean that and they return their coaches on defense too uh the the main thing there on Georgia's defense is just not getting fat and happy uh they've you know I mean they had a guy Otis Reese uh strong saver for free safety linebacker type transferred to Ole Miss just because of playing time. Um, and that that's how much depth they have. And, and they've just got to avoid complacency on that side of the ball. But I will say I've seen this happen before 2012. Georgia had pretty much all these guys coming back. Jarvis Jones off a of first team all American year. Um, Bakari Rambo off a of first team all American year. And, and, everyone was expecting them to be great and they actually were sluggish on fence for half a season, more than half a season um, before they got it going. So it's not automatic that they're going to go out there and and pitch a shutout every week, but they, everything points to they should be really good on defense again. So here's the question. Can they get the offense ready, worked up in time to play Alabama in week three? Because I, Everybody keeps asking me about Georgia and Florida and and saying, oh, Florida's got all this experience and continuity, and doesn't that give Florida an advantage? And I think by the time they play, probably not, because they'll have played eight or nine games, and it won't be as big. If you had an advantage, you know, the other team, Georgia would be able to work out the kinks. But when they play Alabama week three, that's a different story, and Alabama's going to be really good on defense this year. Do you think they can get that worked out? Because it does feel like, you know, with Florida and Georgia, they've uh, Georgia's got the Alabama game. Florida has the LSU game before they play. If one of those teams can win one of those games and the other loses, it changes the whole dynamic of the cocktail party. I don't know if in the context of Georgia's season they need to have everything together by that Alabama game. They do have two weeks before that, and the fact that they're playing – assuming the schedule goes off as it is on the schedule right now, they open with Virginia technically neutral site, but it's in Mercedes Benz in Atlanta, but that, and then they have a week to, uh, um, I already forgot. Sorry. <laughs> East Tennessee state. Maybe. Sorry. But 
they don't open with two weak teams. The fact they open with one, you know, power five conference team in Virginia, I think will probably help. Um, so they get a good look there on how things look, but look, Andy, if they lose in Tuscaloosa week three, then they just merely need to win the rest of their games and they're still back in Atlanta. And that's what they've done the last three years under Kirby smart at charge. They've been 11 and one every year. So it's doable. Yeah. I think the key is that Florida game and avoid a, a slip up like the South Carolina game. And, and look, I know it's, like the the flavor du jour or whatever you want to say has been to pick Florida to win the East, man, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to come off as a Homer because I'm not, but I just still, still see a pretty huge talent gap between Georgia and Florida. And I, I don't know if Florida's there yet. I don't want to come off as an, as an anti Homer, but I I'm with you. I need to see it happen before I believe it. It's going to be a fascinating season in the East because I think Kentucky's going to be better. I think Tennessee is going to be better. Florida's still pretty good. And Georgia, we know they're supremely talented. We just don't know what the offense is going to look like. So I, I think that makes the East one of the more interesting divisions in college football. So, Seth, thank you very much. And uh, I guess the Bulldogs will finally give us some answers here in a couple of months. Hopefully. We'll, we'll see what they look like against Virginia, assuming we see Georgia playing Virginia, which we're assuming right now. I think it's a safe assumption. I feel pretty good about that one. Seth, thank you. All right. Thanks, Andy. That's it for the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Man, it was nice to talk some actual football. We're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep doing that as much as we can because we're less than three months away from games. And I think we're on a pretty good track. I think we're going to see some games. I don't know how many people are going to be in the stands, but I think we are going to see some games. So we'll talk a little more football as we go forward. Hopefully as soon as Wednesday. And we'll talk to you then.